I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Old language was seen and unseen. And Michael Mas, the day of remembering the angels and the watchers and the holy ones and the powers and dominions that God has made for the good of the created order, which remain unseen to us. We can see a lot, can't see it all. We remember that that unseen world is on our side. That is, if you're on Christ's side, because Christ has taken control of all things to move them for good. And even some of those who are part of creation have been on his side all along, not really joining us in the fall. And that battle between the angels and the demons is what these texts are going to be about. Now, as I said before, the most clear text we have this morning is Revelation. And of course, everyone's ears get tickled by the book of Revelation. Something about the lack of clarity in it makes us think it's more fun. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, it could be because much of the language is symbolic or fantastic. And so it, it does inspire our imagination a bit more than, say, the book of Leviticus. Uh, but it, it is a just as complex a book, and you can make all sorts of errors just running around the back end of Daniel deciding you think you know what you're talking about because you read it once or twice, or even because somebody told you what to think about it. It's that unclear. Revelation is almost that bad, although not quite as bad. But I'll just go out on a limb here. I don't think I'm on a limb. I've said it before. I'm going to say that chances are anything you've ever heard talked about from the book of Revelation is wrong. Like 90, 95% of what's out there, 99 even, just dead wrong. Why? Because they don't understand the book. They think it's a roadmap for the end of the world rather than a roadmap for the entire existence of the world. And as a result, they miss some huge, huge points. And I'll try to make a couple of those main ideas very clear this morning, even as we're going to be unable to really completely teach you everything in the book of Revelation and Daniel in what? Half an hour? Good luck. But if you would, in your Bible, if you're not already at Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, uh, turn there. And then I just want you to look right behind it in the context. We're not going to spend a lot of time in the, in the text per se. But I want you to see that before verse 7 talks about this war breaking out in heaven, there's this image, this picture, a signet, a sign, a, a banner, a person actually. A woman shows up and she's in, quote, heaven, the same heaven that verse 7 is going to talk about, and we'll have to go back to that. What does that mean? Where is this, this heaven place? But the sign of this woman appears there, and she is clothed with the sun, which is an image usually referred to God's face. Now, he's the only one that gets to shine like the sun. Jesus does this too, right? But now there's a woman shining like the sun with the moon under her feet. She's standing upon the light of creation reflected in the sun, and on her head is a garland of 12 stars. Now, unless you live in a hole, you have to know that 12 is the number of ancient Israel. There were 12 tribes and is the number of the church. There are 12 apostles. Okay, so on her head are 12, just 12, not 24. As we saw early in the book, 24 elders, which if you remember from last year when we talked about this Old Testament, New Testament representation here, we just have 12. It's like there's only one church. It's like there's only one church, this woman, this bride of Christ, who happens to also be well, represented by his mother, because she is, well, with child. Verse 2, she cries out in labor and in pain gives birth. But as she's giving birth, this woman, who is the Old Testament 12-star church, 
another sign, another image appears in heaven, a great fiery red dragon. <laughs> I mean, uh, we don't believe this, do we? Right? A dragon? What? It's, it's, it's dracon in Greek even, because it's really there, the word. Our image of dragon in English is really mystified by uh, what I call fantasy fiction, smog and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the idea of an ancient, wise, hypernatural beast who has the power to talk and deceive and think and act, that's the idea here. And the oldest stories of dragons, if they're not just big lizards, are about these sphinx-like creatures, right? So, well, apparently there really is one. One sphinx-like giant red dragon that's not got a body, because it's a fallen angel, it's a demon still, it's just the devil. But what's he do then, this dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems, we won't go into that today. He draws down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That's, if you ever hear me say a third of the angels fell, that's why. What's a third? Is it 33.3% of the angels, the poor angel that got cut in two-thirds and a third had to make up the difference? No, a third is a significant minority. We know that not a majority of angels fell, we know that not only a few fell. That's the idea. The devil takes a third of them with him. The dragon stands then in this age, but in heaven too, before the woman who's ready to give birth to eat her child as soon as the child is born. Now, you know who this is, right? This should be clear. That Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. And what does Herod do? Right? Tries to devour the child. The devil knows the game is between him and Jesus. His play, his long game from him old is to take creation from God by taking man from God. And now here God has become a man. Ooh, showdown, right? That's the idea. It's a showdown. And in that moment, when the child's to be born, she bears, verse 5, a male child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Don't miss that he's a warrior. But it says and and mine, but but her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now, it's moving fast, but you actually, this makes perfect sense if you just know what you know. Oh, wait, Mary gave birth to Jesus, and then he ascended into heaven. Yes, he did. There were a few things that happened before that, but you know that. In the story, in the image, the devil's trying to stop the Old Testament from bringing Christ. He doesn't. Christ leaves, and now the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. I'll cut through the chase. 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, all the same amount of time, all half of seven, if you think of seven years. But in the Old Testament, it's just seven as a thing. And those halves of seven end up being symbolic numbers to talk about the Old and the New Testament. So whenever you see something like 1,260 days, it means half of the time that exists in history with Jesus being the middle and throw your clock away. He's not counting by the second evens on either side. But the fullness came in Jesus. We're on the second half. It's called the latter days. If you know that much, you know more than 99% of the people who talk about Revelation. Maybe the latter days isn't even here yet, or maybe it's here or some nonsense like that. But it happened. And don't miss that she, the woman, the church now, with the 12 stars, same lady, other side of Jesus, is in the wilderness. We're in the exile. Remember how we've studied this. Our image for our life is the people of a king on sojourn walking back to the kingdom. 
God has prepared this place and we will be fed through it. And then we see, verse 7, a war breaks out in heaven. Right Now, here's the thing. Is this after? Because if you read this book the way most people do, they think that that thing happened and then the next thing's going to happen and the next thing's going to happen and the next thing's going to happen all in time. Because the only way modern historical godless man has to think about truth is in time. Which, there's some value to knowing the difference between tomorrow and yesterday. Don't get me wrong. But it's not the end-all, be-all for understanding how things operate. So the way that the scriptures are working usually has a lot less to do with time unless it tells you the time. In other cases, it's more about category distinctions. And I don't know how best to bring this about other than like the game dominoes, right? When you play dominoes, you put down a domino, right? And it's got like two different numbers on it. And then you've got to find one of your dominoes that matches the other side. Does it matter what's on the far side of that domino? Well, if you're playing third level dominoes, it does. But, but in general, does it matter? No, you just attach it. But then what's the next person got to do? They've got to hit that other number, right? So think of the ideas, especially in Revelation, as acting like that. Here's an idea that has this idea attached. Ooh, that idea has this idea attached. Ooh, that idea has this idea attached. But there's not like a, a linear line through these things. So the, here at this moment now, when it says, and a war broke out in heaven, this is not later. This is behind it. So you see the one thing of the dragon and, and trying to eat the woman's child. And then you see this other edge. There was more than just a woman and a child and a dragon. You see that Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. That at the time when Jesus died and rose, there was a great local on earth battle between powers and principalities of the unseen. I mean... The sun turned to darkness, the temple curtain split in half, you know, God died, duh, right? And yet, somehow, our modern world has made us kind of strip the story of that. I mean, even if you watch any of the movies, where are the angels? Are they there when Jesus is dying, as the lightning shouts? With all the special effects we got, where's the angels? Where's the heavens? Mel Gibson got close. The devil was there watching in Mel Gibson's. Any case. The dragon and his angels fight back. They do not prevail, nor is any place found for them in heaven any longer. Okay, we got to deal with this word heaven. The word heaven, in the last sermon, I tried to come up with all the meanings of heaven in English that are kind of connected to Christianity. And I stopped at five, and I, there were more that I could come up with. It is such a broad word that it's almost useless to use, unless you're trying to say not earth. But then, biblically, there's a problem with that. Ephesians is very clear that you by virtue of you being tied to Jesus in his flesh and blood, where you're baptized into it, you feast upon that, because he's ascended to heaven when his body joins with you, guess what? You're in heaven. But I'm on earth, yep. <laughs> How am I in heaven? By faith alone, actually. Uh, but, but it's true all the same. Right, so, so where is heaven now? And again, there's many layers. So for the purposes of this text, let me just tell you that the heaven it's talking about is the presence of God wherein you receive God's sustenance or God's blessing, where God has to even see you, I suppose, would be one way to say it. And the distinction that happens at the death of Christ is that the devil goes from being able to kind of run around in front of God's presence and annoy God to being stuck here on earth with the nail already through his tongue into the ground and Jesus' blood driving it stuck. So that when this earth burns... The devil's going to yap and whine and go down with it. 
That is now done. It happened. We live after the event, whereas Old Testament is before the event. But this thing we want to rely on as a solid reality. And the remainder of our text becomes an explanation then as they sing about it, as the angels talk about it for what this means. Verse 9, that the great dragon is cast out, cast down to the earth, and his angels cast with him. Now again, don't think of like far away in the stars coming down to earth. All the angels that are before God's face are also here on earth, but they're also before God's face. The devil is here on earth and not before God's face. Now, he knows this, and it's made him worse in one sense. And that's what kind of we got to draw out of the remainder of our text applied. Verse 10, you have this loud voice out of heaven. Is it Jesus? Is it an angel? I'm not going to get into that right now, but it's very clear that salvation and strength and God's kingdom and the power of Christ have come past. You pray thy kingdom come, not because it's not here, but because you want his kingdom to remain in your heart, right? But his kingdom has come. He has declared sovereignty over this planet. He has bought it for blood price and bought you, slave, for blood price from your master, the devil. And that's the point. The devil then has been cast down. And they, that's you, have conquered him, overcome him by the blood of the lamb. That's by Jesus' blood. And by the word of their testimony, that is the saints of old who saw him and said, he is risen. And then they and you, and this is sort of the test right now, I think, for American Christianity. It really is. They did not love their lives even to death. And as the election approaches, as COVID continues to be this, that, and the other thing, as there's a million other things to be afraid of once we stop worrying about those two things, do you love your life so much that you'll do anything to keep it? Because Christians don't have to. And that's a pretty sweet thing, really. Just leave it at that. Therefore, he says, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Now, take this. That's you. Rejoice, you who dwell in the heavens by means of the body of Jesus. And then here what says, it says, next to the world. This is not you, though, unless you leave Christ, but beware it. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. That's me, right? Don't I live here? Well, kind of. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Again, one of the most common errors you'll find it everywhere for people who teach Revelation is this idea that right before the end of the world, the devil gets like an extra bonus pack to play with. Like somehow he gets superpowers that like weren't here for a while. And they think that this is what says that he's going to have this short little season where he's extra super powerful. Um, no, uh, that's what happened when Jesus ascended. So, so yes, indeed, he does have a little season. He knows his time is short. He's definitely an... Uh, a man of lawlessness, an antichrist. Uh, there's lots of language for talking about how this demonic power is engaged, deceiving men and mankind throughout history from Jesus' ascension to his return. And the fact is, he's always been in great wrath because he knows he was tied here by Jesus. And he knows you aren't. What hope does this guy have? Does he think he has a chance to defeat Christ now? 
You're fooling yourself if you think that's his game. His game is not that he can win. He knows he's done now. He thought he could win till the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now he knows he's done. So what's his game now? Well, misery loves company, doesn't it? Misery loves company. Malice. Malice against you. Oh, no, 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 no. If I got to go down, they're going down with me. That's his game. Woe to you, heaven and earth. He has come down in great wrath. Now, you Christian, should this scare you? I just told you, you're in heaven. Rejoice, oh, you who dwell in the heavens. For Michael and his angels fight by your side. They have cast this dragon out of heaven. Do you think now, joined with Jesus and his body and blood, you have such a threat to your life? Not at all, unless you forget. Yeah, unless you forget. So, I want to move from here into the Daniel text. But let's take just a moment and do a little bit of review. Let's hit some of these points that I want to hit every week for us. Like your identity check. Why are you here? at 4881 Kilburn. Why are you watching? Huh? What are you after? I'm here because you have told me my job is to live here and tell you what the Bible says and to not let you in any way stop me from doing that. And generally to try to have a good relationship as we go, right? But that's why I'm here. Because I believe that what the scriptures say about Jesus' resurrection, about his atonement and pain for you and your life, your sins, all that, about you being immortal now because you're in him and how he's going to roll all this up soon enough anyway, how the water has sealed that, how the food is going to feed that, how this is the Christianity that will enlighten you. It will enlighten you. I'm here because I believe that. And everything I do, whether you like it or not, is geared toward me trying to help you with that in some way. And I'm, you know, I'm a fallen man just like you so my perfect is sometimes the enemy of the good also uh, that was our broken rule for last week you remember that that you're perfect what you think is has to be is usually the enemy of the good for the group and that this builds upon the one lie the devil always uses which is that it's about you and what you want and what you need rely on yourself do more all that kind of stuff those are the first two kind of ideas in my book broken leading us to the main substantial thought that will drive the whole book. And I'm going to come back to this idea again and again throughout the year. I'm not going to say a lot about it right now. But the third big idea out of Broken is that the human is a threefold being. Now, I'm not talking about, there's this old nonsense about how humans are body, soul, and spirit. And all this, just don't even go there. I'm talking about how you experience you three ways. You experience you in your mind and in your heart and with your hands, your hands being shorthand for your whole body. Now, your mind and your heart are obviously in your body, and death is where your body goes away. Your mind and heart are still around with Jesus somehow. There's some confusion here. We don't really know how it works. But what I can know is that if you aren't feeding your mind and your heart and your body with, well, life to begin with, you die. With Jesus, you lose your faith. And that the devil's lies, when he comes at you, his best lies go at either your mind or your heart or your body in different ways. They twist that lie, rely on you toward different things. And the rest of what we'll do with broken is just going to build on that and flush it out throughout the year. With that, then, add to it our talk them into it update. Now, where'd that little card go? I'm going to be lost without my papers. There it is. I'm not going to remind you of the other three that we've done so far. I'm just going to start with. I think this is the best point of the whole book, really. Like, if you get this, everything else will follow. Christianity, by definition, promises conversion. It promises conversion. It doesn't sell conversion. It doesn't try to convince you to convert. It promises 
conversion. And then while we know, last week's point, much of the world, the world is not listening, we know that because Christianity promises conversion and it's God's promise, people will convert. It won't be the grand majority, but it'll be a sufficient number. And as I said at both services this morning and to you last week, remember, don't expect people to show up here wanting us to teach them what the Bible says if we don't know what the Bible says. God's not going to send us anybody to disciple if we have not learned discipline ourselves, right? So, so in that, Christianity promises conversion. We are a people not of you must, but of he did, he has. And that reality guarantees more people to believe. Don't let go of it. Don't let go of it. All right. Since we're off the text, we're going to make one more tangent before we hit Daniel. It's pretty close to the book of Daniel. But two weeks ago, I told you every week I'm going to give you one proverb to look at. And I didn't do it last week. I feel very bad. But we are going to do it this week. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10 and, well, it's 2, 19. 10's really short. So if you'd find your way to the opening of the book of Proverbs, my encouragement to you has been, and will continue to be this year, that if you take anything home and do anything at home, you are either making notes on hymns you're reading while looking up the texts in the bottom of the hymnal, or you're reading the book of Proverbs every day, one or two, and just trying to make a note on the one and then carrying that note with you all day. I bet you if you start doing that, you notice some pretty cool things start to happen with those words in your life. With that then, the book can be tough to get into. Section, uh, or verses 8 through 19 is the whole section. It's a whole theme that holds together. And the main idea of this theme is that there are bad people. And if you follow them, bad stuff happens to you. I know, right? But then I was at a meeting last week that the Rockford PD and the mayor put on for the community to talk about prejudice and violence and all sorts of stuff like that. I'm not going to talk about the rest of what I saw and said there, but I remember someone asking the question, are you saying that somebody would lie when they fill out their survey? And I remember someone else in a position of power saying, oh, no, 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 I don't mean that. Nobody would lie. Oh, really? Bad people don't exist? Color me, color me skeptical on you guys finding a way out of that mess if you don't think bad people exist and you're going to fix crime. The point is that it's easy to forget bad people exist when you're looking at them because they don't always look bad. Liars come mm, ready to deceive. So then again, I told you the real verse is verse 19 here. The ways of everyone who are greedy for gain take away the life of their owners. So wickedness begins with not being satisfied and wanting more. Think of what the fall was. Think of the prayer for daily bread and how we go to bed at night unhappy because we don't have enough for tomorrow and we're worried about it, right? That is unbelief. I'm not saying you can't plan for tomorrow. I am saying you only should plan for tomorrow knowing you can't plan for tomorrow. Uh, the Lord always has his own way. And the more you understand that in the Lord's way, you'll seek to avoid the wayward, the wicked, right? That word wayward, I'm going to try to use that more often to talk about the fool. It comes from two words, the word way, like a path, and then a ward, which used to mean to pull something away, but sort of means like a thing you can't go past, like a boundary marker. So the wayward person can't get on the path. That's the strange thing about the word. They're off in the weeds and they can't get back on the road. And so what the Proverbs tell you here right away at the start is there's a bad people without a road. 
And if you get among them, you might not get back on the road. So watch who you listen to, guard your heart closely, yes? So the Daniel issue here, how much time do we have? Oh, we're good, we'll be fine. Daniel chapter 10 through 12 is one vision, one section that is the final vision Daniel receives near the very end of his life, of which he himself does not understand its meaning. And it is clear that the meaning will not be understood until a particular event takes place. Now, again, if you've listened to me long enough, you're going to know what I think that one event that matters, what that was. Right? When can we begin to understand what Daniel says here? When Jesus dies, because he's the key to what's happening here. And if you don't have that, and you're trying to pin the tail on the nation state of Israel this week, again, like they've been doing for 50 years, you're just going to be off in the weeds again, lost. All that kind of eschatology, end of the world nonsense about Jerusalem and Zion. I'm not saying there isn't a light and darkness reality going on in the global politics. What I'm saying is the Bible doesn't talk about that in the book of Daniel. Daniel's about something very different. Mainly, God ordering the powers so that Jesus could die where and when he did. And making that happen. And then letting Daniel know, here's what will happen. You'll see it after the fact. And we can. And then he gives us a few things about what we can't know. We're kind of left with that, which is again why I say the Revelation text is the one you should cling to more. But let's let's look at this broad vision here. There's so much that goes on. Uh, chapter 10 begins with this vision of a glorious man. And the debate is, who is this guy that shows up in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia? Remember, Daniel left Jerusalem as an exile before the final sacking of Jerusalem. A very young man lived in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, evil Merodach, like four or five other kings. They're conquered by Persia with the Medes. And Daniel serves at least one king, Cyrus, um, maybe two if, if Darius the Mede is not Cyrus, and that's a different argument. He serves at least one king for another empire, and then he dies. And he never goes back to the land, even though others who came with him, Nehemiah and Ezra, do go back to the land when this same guy, Cyrus, sends them back to rebuild the temple. It's about that time this happens, and it's likely it's because he's been fasting and in prayer for a week, he says as much, in concern over the fact that the temple's not being built. He's bothered by it. He knows the prophecies of Jeremiah. In fact, it would seem from what he says here, he's also reading Jeremiah's prophecy, which said 70 years from the moment that it happens till the decree goes up to rebuild. That's happened or is about to happen. But he's concerned and afraid and he prays. And at least three weeks go by until the Lord Jesus shows up to answer his prayer. But I, I jumped ahead now. How do we know this divine man is the Lord Jesus? That's one of the arguments. And depending on who you read, they're going to say, well, this is maybe an angel. This is maybe this, this is maybe that. I'm not going to go into all the detail again, but it's the same thing you got to do when you're in like Revelation. You see a picture of a supreme being of some kind. The, the angel in Revelation, you know, he stands upon the land and the sea. He's got a rainbow on his head, a bunch of stuff like that. Well, you can be like, wow, it's a powerful angel. Or you can ask, okay, what does land and sea mean? What do rainbows mean? What does the thing on his chest mean? Look in the Old Testament for those meanings. And when you find they're all always used for God and nobody else, well, then it's not an angel, right? Then it's God. And that's kind of what happens here. I'm not going to go into the detail again, but this is evidently Jesus. Now, pre-incarnate Jesus, no body. What's that mean? You might've heard it as the angel of the Lord in stories with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the angel of the Lord shows up. 
He can take a physical form. He can engage like Gabriel Michael will do, more, more Gabriel when he gives messages. But uh, how do we understand this? Whenever there is a showing up of God in the Old Testament, whether it's the man who meets Joshua before they enter the land and says, I've got my army with me, or, or whether it is the angel forces around Jerusalem that Elisha, excuse me, that Elijah and his servants see uh, through the window, wherever that is happening, Christ, the Son of God, pre-incarnate, was among them as the leader and champion up to his joining the fray as flesh. But here at this moment, he goes to and fro as he will, omniscient as he can be, but he takes time away from fighting in Persia to bring about the restoration of the temple to come tell Daniel, hey, Daniel, I got it. <laughs> I'm doing it. I had to take time away from doing it to come talk to you, make you feel better. And that's chapters 10 through 12 is all of that, right? Oh my goodness. There's so much more. And I don't even know that I've even touched what we need to move on past. So then from uh, from there, you have this picture of this man. He picks him up, and then our text picks up with verses 10 and following, right? So then, that's the hand in verse 10 that touches him. We could talk about, you know, he sees Jesus, he falls on his face. That's pretty intense. Uh, those are all blanks. Uh, he, he, that's pretty intense. Daniel, man greatly loved, he calls him. You should hear that as being about you. That's how he feels about each of his little ones. The Matthew 18 text says as much. I love you, so understand the words I speak. Stand up. <laughs> I've been sent to you, right? Uh, get up. But when he gets up, what's he doing? He's trembling. You see how weak we are, how frail we are in the face of this kind of strength. But again, he says, fear not, Daniel. I've come to answer your prayer. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. So who is the prince of the kingdom of Persia? I'm not going to go into all the history of the Persians, the Medes, and the Babylonians and where different people or leaders or demons might or might not be at given times. There's something we could do with that. It'd take us a while. But let's just say that when the temple was sent to be rebuilt down in Jerusalem, there was a whole host of dark powers that tried to stop it from happening. Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and some of Chronicles are about this. And so what Jesus is saying is that I have been with my church, reestablishing our footprint physically in that place. And it took that long for the stubborn hearts to stop trying to either kill people or convert them away from the idea so that I could leave and just leave Michael there in my place. Now, obviously, Jesus can go anywhere, but the point is, see around the ark, the hungry billows curling. If they're going to rebuild the temple, no, he actually has to be there. Just like now, he has to be there. The good news is the bread and wine can be everywhere, right? Not just in one place. So that's kind of what's going on. Is he's getting that temple rebuilt, but he comes to make him understand what's going to happen for your people in days to come. And then our text jumps ahead two chapters. He doesn't. He goes into an elongated story about two kings, the king of the north and the king of the south, and how they come out of one great king's empire that we heard about earlier in the book, Alexander the Great. And even though there were four empires that came out of his, there's two that really wrestle for the land the temple is going to sit on. They are called the king of the north, the king of the south. I won't give you all the details right now. But what he goes into now is a such a minutia-driven description of each of these powers and what will happen to them 
down to the level where these Seleucid families and Ptolemaic families are trying to exchange marriages so that they won't fight over Palestine anymore, and Cleopatra is involved in the text, but only as a shadow. That's how minutia-driven it gets, so that, why have you never heard about this? Well, for the last hundred years, most scholars that are in most church bodies don't believe it was written by Dan. It's too good. It's too spot on. It's too true. So a lot of places won't even teach you it's here because they don't think it really is from God. Now, the, the other side of this is that we've forgotten about the real story. That there is one false empire headed by the devil trying to destroy humanity from the start. And it always takes the form of the greatest world power that there is at the time or several of them. It's not whether China or the U.S. are good. Come on now. Uh, every power of man that seeks to make a name for man is going to make a name for man and hurt other men by doing so. Now, again, I'll wave my flag and say, God bless America, because here I can protect my neighbor. Other places you can't. But I'm not going to pretend for a minute that our global world hegemony is only good all the time. Oh, come on. <laughs> not a chance. It's about money. Follow the money. Always follow the money. Who benefits? The bigger idea to pull from this is that while powers are fighting, down to the minute details between Cleopatra and the House of Pesalius and all this kind of stuff, God knows it all ahead of time. None of it's outside of his control. And he brings it to the creation of that temple that he could come to and die in. So if we skip ahead, you can kind of view, like I'm up in 11.9, the king of the north is still talking about these details. If you go through it, by the way, because it's got this category jumping, that domino thing I said earlier, what makes this text so difficult is it'll skip like hundreds of years without telling you it's doing that. It'll change topics. It'll go from a group of four to a group of two and just assume you know it's talking about the same two that were in the four before. It's a very challenging section. But again, kings of north, kings of south, Greece, Persia, fighting into Palestine, leading to a time where there'll be this really terrible northern king. That's around verse 29 in chapter 11. And again, you know, verse by verse, the time load would be too much. But the long and short is that there arises out of that Seleucid empire down there ruling Palestine, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Actually, his name was Antiochus. He names himself Epiphanes, which means the face of God. <laughs> Humble guy. Uh, this guy was a guy whose brother had been on the throne, and he'd been sent away as a hostage to this new group called Rome who'd shown up on the scene. So suddenly the Seleucids weren't quite in the control that they were. Uh, he'd been raised in Rome and mysteriously on his way back, being released from Rome, his brother is killed by poison or something. He shows up, takes over. <laughs> Go figure. In any case, he presents one of the, what we would call as Americans, one of the best, best kingdoms that ever exists in that period for the average person to live, unless you wanted to be a Jew. And then, he tried to destroy your religion with everything that was in him. So he was a good man in a lot of ways, but a very bad man in other ways. And he becomes this blasphemous king of the north who, like other blasphemous kings in the Bible, is a picture of Satan himself, who's going to be drawn by the nose to die at Jesus' feet and all that. But he continues to create these conquests. This is up until verse 40 and, and so on. It follows their life. Uh, again, I'm looking at verse 43. You got Egypt, Ethiopia, the Libyans mentioned news from East. Every verse there is jumping ahead a category jump until you hit not the end of the world, 
but until you hit Jesus. And that's where then, in our reading, we leapt over the kings of the north and south from, hi, Daniel, I'm okay, I left Michael, but it's going to be fine, to there's going to come a time when Michael arises in the place where we're working right now. And it's going to make some stuff happen. I'm going to tell you again, this is not the end of the world, outside of it being the end of the world in Jesus' death 2,000 years ago, right? So that at that time, when everything else has been set up, Cleopatra and Mark Antony and Augustus and Herod and the wise, everything's been set up at that time. Michael shall stand up. What's he been doing, sitting down? I don't know. Now he's going to stand up this great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, Daniel. That's you. That's the church in every age. Michael is a general charged with our lives. And there shall be, at the time he rises to fight the devil up in heaven, like we read about in Revelation, a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. I don't think I'm being hyperbolic to say that happened when Jesus died. That Jesus' death is a time of trouble, unlike any time of trouble the universe has ever known or ever will know again, for that matter. And all other destructions are but reflections of this. So that's what arose as Michael fights the devil, even to that time. And at that time, your people, Daniel, that is the believing Jews, shall be delivered. How? Jesus died. He paid for them. That's how. Everyone who is found written in the book, that's the book of life. Revelation does talk about that. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, here's where the question becomes, did he just domino himself to the end of the world? Or is it even about the end of the world at all? It's easy to assume that when it talks about those sleeping in the dust of the earth awakening, that that's the resurrection of the body. I'm not so sure. That word dust is pretty special in the Old Testament. And I can't help but wonder if this is faith. But either way, the domino category shift, if you want to jump it to the end of the world, that's fine. That the resurrection is going to come. In fact, many would make the case that this is the primary resurrection passage in the Old Testament, that the body will come back out. More valuable, I think, for you today is verse 3. That those who are wise, which is you, if you attend to the Proverbs, the Psalms, the Scriptures, are going to shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn to righteousness, many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. I think it says brightness of the sun there in the, in the ESV. There it is. So the idea is that, again, whether in the future or now, the body and blood of Jesus, the reality of who he is, the grace that goes into you is not going to stop you from being better. Ever. You can still make yourself worse by leaving him. But as long as he is drawing you to him, there is nothing to fear and nothing to lose. It is only going to drive you more and more into light and brightness. Now, following that text, the rest of chapter 12, he says, so, Daniel, you're not going to understand any of this, so close it up. Seal the book. Make it so that nobody can read it until that time. I'm going to give you one more thing from Revelation. Do you remember how? In Revelation, there's a sealed up book that nobody can read. It's got all sorts of stuff on it. And then where is this person who can open it? No one is found. They, they cry out. And then the lamb is there. and He's been slain, but he lives. And what's he do to the sealed book? He opens it. He opens it. Now, what does he give you? Well, I'd say start with Matthew and Romans and then get to Revelation and try to make more sense of it from there. I want to give you a piece of Matthew chapter 18 before we leave. I'm not going to give you much. Uh, Matthew 18 is a, on the surface, disconnected text. It's here because at the back end, you have the one verse in the Bible that talks about guardian angels. 
That's verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So, well, who are the little ones? A moment ago, he put a child in the midst of the disciples. Why did he do that? Well, they were asking the question, which one of us gets to be in charge? Which one of us is the, is the most powerful and the greatest of all? And uh, he doesn't like that idea. That's, that's the problem the devil had, right? Uh, he, he wants them to understand something different. So he pushed this little child in their midst. And throughout history, I've heard this usually talked about as if this is an example of humility or something, right? So here's the child, and we're supposed to be like the child because they're so, they're so something. But I don't think that's really what he's getting at. And if you've ever had a child say no to you when they're screaming, you know they're not the most humble creatures ever. So what's he really pointing out? Well, if I were to take, what's the young, is Hugh the youngest we got in here this morning? I think so, maybe. Um, back here, we got a little boy in the back, too. If I were to take that kid, put him out on the street, humble schmumble, they're helpless as heck, right? They're in trouble. Walking out, what are they going to do? They don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't know. That's the point. So if you're going to ask, how's my faith doing, Lord? How am I growing, Lord? Hey, aren't I ready for more, Lord? The greatest among you knows that you're just a wandering infant in this mess. So then the little ones are all of us who are acknowledging, yeah, I'm a wandering infant in the need of salvation. I need help. And then he says, your angel sees the Father's face. Again, I hesitate to tell you, you can know for certain, you have a single guardian angel who is always with you, assigned to you from your baptism on. I can't tell you that because I'm only 99% sure of that. There's a 1% chance that it doesn't mean that. Most Christians have believed that, and it's because of this verse. It's just, you know me, I want to be really clear. And because this is the only verse in the Bible that teaches this, I'm not going to stand up on Judgment Day and say, well, this was the Orthodox thing or I'm going to hell, right? We know the powers are for us. We know the angels are for us. We believe they see the Father and us and guide us and guard us and aid us and help us. Do you have a specific one around you whenever you go? I like to think of it that way. I like to think that at my house, there's seven. Today, this morning here, there's what, at least 35, 40? They're hanging out. And, and they're going to rejoice with us in a moment. I'm going to say as much in the liturgy. With angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, let us, let us sing. They sing with us. They're on our side, right? One more thought. As you watch the darkness of our country in its various pockets and holes kind of eat itself alive, Remember that if there, are, if there are actually, what, 35, 40 fiery angels here right now, this morning, they won't be here when we leave. They're going to go home with you right, and me, all us. But they're here right now. How many demons are going to like want to show up in this area? Or imagine if, if you're a family of Christians and there's another family of Christians beside you, another beside you, and then and there's some evil. How do you think that plays out in life? Do you assume it's just there? Or do you know that there's more going on and God actually puts you there not to hide, but to believe you can't be hurt and to help. And that proximity of power that light and darkness really has means on this corner, 4881, we are a, a city on a hill. We're a light here. And bad ideas don't want to come here. I'm going to contest to you that you will see people either visiting and leaving or leaving generally because why? They don't like the ideas here. Why? Well, that's the thing to ask yourself, right? There's a lot of bad ideas out there. We have a stronghold. 
Our goal this year is to expose the strongholds that have wanted for 100 years to break into these facilities. And many of the facilities have taken them over where Christ being risen is no longer preached. You don't need to fear because of that. You need to know we're here and he has not abandoned us. And we're going to go on the attack. The attack means talking to people about the good news of having a conscience free to know that your anxiety is your sin. And Jesus forgave that too. And that your hope is that no matter what your feet do today, they're walking toward the end of the wilderness, carried upon the wings of angels all the way as need be, the Lord your God designing your steps so you might benefit the most possible people around you with the gifts he gives you to share. On the last day, shout hallelujah and rise up with the rest of us forever and ever, yeah? Oh, I can keep going. You guys got to go home, don't you? Let's, let's feast in the name of Jesus. Amen.